In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Lent began with Jesus' exodus. Exodus, you remember, is just a fancy term for spring break. It's time for a trip. For Israel, the exodus was from Egypt to the promised land. For Jesus, it will be a trip, an exodus, from the top of the world, the mountain of transfiguration, to the deepest depths of hell. Along the way, we have seen that there are all sorts of people trying to direct traffic. Four weeks ago, it was Satan in the wilderness, posing three detours. Turn some stones to bread, you will be popular. Everybody likes a free lunch. Jump down from the top of the temple and survive, and you will be successful. Everybody loves a miracle. Make a little compromise, fall down, kiss my feet. Just a little power sharing, and you yourself will become very powerful. Everybody loves a winner, but Jesus would not bite. Three weeks ago, it was St. Peter who tried to bend the exodus, who tried to change Jesus' route. Jesus said to his closest disciples, I'm about to go up to Jerusalem and die. Peter said, this will never happen, standing in Jesus' way. And to the disciple whom Jesus loved, he said, get behind me, Satan. Two weeks ago, Jesus came to Jerusalem and found the temple was horribly dirty. So Jesus cleaned house. Two weeks ago, Jesus swept away all the stuff that would trip us up as we tried to follow him to Calvary, cash registers and sales clerks and cows and sheep and doves. There is nothing wrong with stuff, of course, not with cash or clerks, not with cows or doves. And you can have your stuff as long as it serves God and your neighbor. But when it gets in the way of the cross, then Jesus takes your stuff away from you. And last week then, it was John 3.16. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, plunging himself into darkness. Not out of vindictiveness or wrath, but rather out of mercy. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, 17. In that, says St. John, in all the dodging of the detours and in sticking to the cross, Jesus finds his glory. The very first week I was in the ministry, I received a letter from an old pastor named Bill Royer. He was a local legend. He was the old man from down the road, long service to the church, great wisdom, and ever helpful for the new guys. I should have gotten a full course of seminary credit just for what I learned while playing golf with him. Anyway, he wasn't able to be at my ordination, but that first week he sent me a letter. Inside the letter, there was a small little brass plaque which I stuck to the bottom of the pulpit. It was meant as a reminder to me and anybody else who ever preached from that pulpit again. It was the words of the Greeks 
in the gospel for today, sir, we would see Jesus. Of course they would. And of course we would too. Everybody wants to see Jesus. In verse 19, the Pharisees complain, the whole world has gone after him. Everybody wants to see Jesus. That's all they want to do. But the question is, the weighty question is, what is it that they want to see? I suspect what they would like to see is a bit of his glory. Certainly they had heard the stories, how Jesus had chased demons away, how his touch could heal a leper or let a blind man see or let a lame man walk again. So this is their chance to see Jesus up close. I suppose that they would like to see a bit of that. But what is that? You watch us humans at work or at play. When the adrenaline begins to flow, when the heart begins to pound, when we throw up our hands in sheer delight, when we are in our glory, you will learn what we consider glorious. I have read about a professor who teaches a course on war. He spends the first three weeks of the course having his students read novels about wars, watching war movies, and telling war stories. He wants his students to see how much we humans love war. Nobody writes novels about peace. And so a few years ago, Denzel had one of the best movies of the year about the Civil War, but it was called Glory. In Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, the word for glory is kavod. In the New Testament, in Greek, it is doxa. Those words mean something that has heft. It has a weightiness or a splendor about it, this glory. Glory is that which gives you substance. Glory is that which makes you shine. You wait. It's the final four. In fact, you're doing your penance right now. The first game has started. And sometime during this weekend, some 19-year-old kid is going to come down the floor behind by two and toss up a three. It's going to go in, and his life is going to be changed forever. No matter what happens the rest of his life, that place will go crazy, and for the rest of his life, he will be defined by that moment of glory. And isn't that what the Pharisees and the Greeks and you and I wish to see tonight? Enough of ordinary flesh and blood, enough of this Galilean humanness. Down by two, time running out, hardly anything left of Lent. Let's see him hit the big one from way outside. Let's have this place go crazy. Let's see his splendor, his heft, his weightiness, his glory. And so you will. But the very first thing to know about Jesus is that if you will have him, you will have him on his terms. Where is his glory? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then, it is when a seed dies that it produces much fruit. It is the man who loses his life that keeps his life. 
It is the man who hates the world that gains heaven. And it is the Son of Man who is lifted up upon the cross who draws the world to himself. For us, that answer is shocking. When we think of God, we think of distance. We think of otherness. We think of power and success and popularity. We think about a God who can do what we cannot. Chiefly, what we think about is a God who can win and win at will. We are low, God is high. We are weak, God is strong. We are flesh, God is spirit. We die, but God lives forever. That's our kind of glory. And so this evening come the Greeks, looking for what they define as splendid, as weighty. But they do not get what they expected. They expected Jesus on the cover of Time magazine. But Jesus does not have time for a photo shoot. He couldn't be bothered to stop. Instead, Jesus needs to make time. Only two weeks left. He's got to get to the cross by Good Friday. So what they get and what we get is a Jesus who surprises us at every turn. When you think about it, touching other people's leprosores is not very splendid. When you think about it, washing other people's dirty feet is not very honored. When you think about it, a crown of thorns is not a mark of success. And when you think about it, dribbling your life out on a cross, it's not very glorious. Unless, unless it is a work of God himself, unless it really is the Son of Man who is lifted up, unless it really does pay for the sins of the world, unless it really does forgive, unless it is really God come down, light into darkness, who teaches us who he is and how to live, unless our God is here again tonight in flesh and blood, then there is nothing more grand, solid, spectacular, certain, weighty, glorious than this incarnation, than this life and death. And so the old man Royer corrects the Greeks, not in name, but in substance. And that is what you are meant to hear from this pulpit and receive at this font and see at this altar. God himself, God incarnate, God in Christ, in flesh and blood, sir, we would see Jesus, and we do. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.